As a security professional, I would love to say, give me your phone and I'll give you a new hardened phone instead. But that's a non-starter. People are very connected to their devices. Um, and we spent a lot of time understanding user behavior and understanding where those breaking points are. Today on TechNATO, we'll be talking with Nate Lesser from Sipian Black about how you can secure your executives' networks. That's a big problem. We're also going to be talking about a lot of Microsoft news as well as some cool new hardware from Intel. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm happy to be joined uh, by Don Bazette, who is back in the office. Don, how you doing? I am doing swell. And uh, there's a really tall guy in between us. Uh, this is Wes Bryan. Wes, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me in here, guys. We're it's excited great. to have you. Absolutely. And we've, uh, we've got a big show today. We've got uh, Nate Lesser in a little bit. He's with Sipian Black. We're going to talk about uh, helping executives uh, stop from getting attacked and fished and hacked and all those things on their, their home networks. Um, so that's going to be interesting. But before that, we've got a lot of news to get to. And there's a, there's a big article, a uh, big story that just happened uh, today for when we're filming it. And... Uh, Probably by the time you're watching, maybe there's a little bit uh, more information on it. But Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks co-founder, was arrested in London uh, doing his best Santa Claus impersonation there. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that perp walk was was something to see, huh? It turns out that uh, it, let me let me just verify uh, or confirm what you're saying is that there are very very few details out here. But basically, the uh, Ecuadorian embassy has uh, revoked his asylum claim. Uh, and so they invited Scotland Yard to actually come into the embassy and arrest him. Uh, and that's really all that we, we know at this point. Uh, he has gone before a magistrate, and they have uh, found him guilty of two things. One, uh, failing to appear in court, uh, which he can get a sentence of up to a year for, and two, having a man bun. So, uh, yes, fashion <laughs> so fail. From the courtroom artistry, we can see. Like, we wish you hadn't appeared in court today. <laughs> you know, that, that makes it worse. Yeah. So here's my question. This entire time, it's seven years, right, that he's been there. Mm -hmm. Was there was there like a car sitting in front of the Ecuadorian embassy this entire time watching? Because I'm thinking two weeks ago when I see the writing on the wall, I just make a dash. Yeah, supposedly the building has been under surveillance for a long, long time. Like, and, and, and even if it wasn't the police, the press have been camped out That's in front true. of it for a while. But I, I got a kick out of how uh, rumors started that uh, Ecuador was going to kick him out last week. Yeah. And then uh, the the uh, the ambassador and a few other Ecuadorian officials came out and said that's not true, we're not kicking him out. Uh and then they revoked his asylum, which I guess maybe maybe that's not kicking him out. They revoked his asylum which allowed the British to come and kick him out. Yeah. You're you're free to stay if you can run around the dining room table and and avoid them. <laughs> Do you yeah. think they got those rumors off of WikiLeaks? Oh. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's so, a little redundant. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to see if more details come out. Uh, you know, it is kind of hard at this point to remember all the way back what he's even being charged for. Uh, remember that he set up the anonymous whistleblower site, uh, WikiLeaks, so that people could go and post information. So the crime that he's being targeted for is actually assisting in the dissemination of secret information. Uh, so not he's not a hacker. He's not a super cyber criminal or anything like that. He was just creating the outlet to put this out. Uh, some people think he's a hero. Some people think he's a criminal. We don't really know, and uh, hopefully we'll find more details later. We'll find out, and hopefully uh, he and Roger Stone can bunk together because uh, they're good old buddies as well. So, 
All right. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on this one. Uh, but we do have news that we know things about now, <laughs> so we're going to cover those things as well. Uh, first one up uh, over at windowscentral.com. Uh, Windows 10 will no longer auto-install feature updates twice a year. So is this what would always happen whenever I was doing a presentation and it would just start uh, installing, or is that just <laughs> regular be, updates? be all for 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Microsoft moved to that six-month cadence where every six months they'd put out a major release. And with the 1809 release that came out supposedly last September, it's been a debacle. It's just been problem after problem after problem. They've suspended it and re-released it and suspended it again. Uh, and right now, it's we don't have an article for this, but it's unofficially suspended again, even though they haven't come out and announced that. Uh, and the reason is they're up on their next six-month cadence. So at this point, if you've got machines that haven't received 1809, they're ready to receive, what is it, 1903? Uh, so that, you know, that new one is is either out or coming out any day now. So it's been a mess. Mm -hmm. And what it all boiled down to was that they were doing feature updates, not just bug fixes and security patches, but feature updates as well. And what Microsoft is now doing is kind of pivoting a little bit and saying, all right, we're going to make those feature updates optional, where you can pass on them. You don't have to do them. If you want, you can. You can be on the cutting edge. But for enterprises especially, it can be really a bit of a pain. Uh, and so this is their their kind of way of backing up on that whole requirement of forcing you to do those updates. So this isn't all updates, though, right? Because, I mean, security updates and things are less optional. Right. You still get those. And, and they're, especially the ones that are, are considered uh, urgent or uh, what, critical, what you remember? Uh, critical, yeah, critical and hot fixes. Mm -hmm. So so those, they still push out and they, they, don't, they don't even wait for like Patch Tuesday or anything. They just roll them out as soon as they can have them ready and tested. Uh, but these are the big collections of updates that roll forward that help you when you do like a new install. It's a, okay. it's a big deal. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Microsoft, uh, our next article is over on devblogs.microsoft.com about PowerShell. The next release of PowerShell, PowerShell 7. That's you know, let me jump in here and say, where did Microsoft learn to count? Because if you notice, it was uh, we went from Windows and 7 Windows, to Windows 8.1. And then 10. And then 10. Yeah. Uh, PowerShell 6.2. I think Apple taught them when they jumped from the iPhone 8 to, yeah. the, to the iPhone yeah, well, 10. Yeah, we got we to talk about their numerical counting. Well, so in this case, they, they made the decision to jump from 6.2 to 7 because they wanted to show this was a major change from 6.2. Oh. Uh, and it's actually kind of interesting in the article they pointed out uh, at the back in October, back at Ignite, they made the big announcement that, hey, we now support PowerShell on Linux. So if you're on a Linux machine, you can install the PowerShell and execute PowerShell commandlets and even manage Linux servers. And that's all a direct result of Azure being over 50% Linux servers now. Like the majority of servers on Azure are Linux-based. Well, they've been monitoring PowerShell util utilization numbers. And they've actually found that more people are using PowerShell on Linux than, than ever before. It's wildly popular. So they decided, starting with PowerShell 7, or this new version, to actually change it. And instead of basing it off of the .NET framework, uh, you know, the older .NET 4 or .NET 3.5, to base this one off of .NET Core. And .NET Core is the one that runs on Linux and Windows, and I, I believe Mac OS and as according well. According to this chart, yeah, if we, uh, we can take a look at the chart there. If about, I bother to uh, scroll down. Yeah, <laughs> that you can see kind of visually what you were just saying. The orange represents uh, the Linux market share there uh, for PowerShell, and... Wow, it's you know yeah. it's it's pretty steady for Windows, you know, uh, going back to about January uh, 2018. But yeah, the uh, the Linux side is really taken off. And you say that's from AWS users. 
not AWS, but Azure. Oh, Microsoft, Azure. Microsoft I'm Microsoft's sorry. Platform. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, this is a big change, uh, mostly because it's being based off of .NET Core. And PowerShell and .NET Core are on the same release cadence, so it was easy for them to, to realign, and now they come out at the same time. Uh, they do mention in the article, though, that they are not on the same release cadence as Windows. And so PowerShell 7 is not going to be the default PowerShell and Windows for probably quite some time, probably for at least a year before they, they realign them. Uh, so that means that you're going to see some people out there with PowerShell 5 or 6, so that's the reason why we have this big jump all the way up to seven. This is one of the few times where it actually makes sense. They want to call attention to that change. So it'll be a side-by-side -side feature where they'll have like the default five or whatever it happens to be at the time. And then this will be something that you can download and install and potentially run yeah. it side-by-side. -side. Uh, yeah, they, they mentioned you can actually run both side-by-side. -side. That's interesting. Hmm. I'm not sure if you'd really need to, but I, maybe not, not every command let's been moved over to .NET Core. We'll have to see. Sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, PowerShell 8, then PowerShell 10. That's right. Back that's because that's how we count. That's how numbers exactly. work. Do you guys know the story why they had to skip Windows 9? I Internal versioning numbers, I think it was, because uh, the 9X uh, you know, framework for all of the 90s series. Yep. There were a lot of developers that when they ran software, it would just check to see if your operating system na name was Windows 9X versus anything else, which would be Windows NT-based. And oh. so if they had gone to Windows 9, it would trigger some of this old software uh, and cause problems, so they skipped it. Yeah, I thought it was because the German market, it really wouldn't go over that well. Nine, you don't want it? Yeah, Windows, no. Yes. Yeah, Windows, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, next up, staying in the Microsoft world, but over on Tom's hardware.com, uh, Microsoft asks Windows insiders to test Chromium-based Edge. So this is something we've talked about a lot on this show before in terms of, of Chromium and, and how there's different standards out there, but... Uh, uh, is, is this something we'll be um, seeing to the mass market soon? Yeah. You know, it was just a month or two ago that we had the article where Microsoft announced they were going to be rebasing Microsoft Edge on the Chrome rendering engine, which I've forgotten the name. I, I guess it's not called Chromium. What is the rendering engine called? Not sure. I can look it up. Something. Yep. Uh, so anyhow, they're basing it on it. A lot of people were critical of that, but, you know, basically Edge isn't gaining a lot of market share and people like Chrome. And so they're, they're starting to kind of mirror that. And it was just an announcement back then. Now it's actually being released to the public. So if you want to try and run Microsoft Edge with the Chrome base, all you have to do is join the uh, the Insider program, right? If you get on the, uh, I don't think it's on the, actually, I do think it's still on the Fast Ring. But if you get in the Insider program, it can come down as part of your Insider preview, and you'll be able to see that. Uh, so it's not for regular users just yet. It's, it's simply released in that Insider program. And you know, I didn't grab an article for this. I think Ars Technica had a great one on it, though. But right now, for the next week, we're in that really weird window of time where if you're in the Insider program and you want to get out, this is that, like, one week where you can get out, and then it'll be another six months before you have a chance to get out, <laughs> unless you want to format and reinstall your operating system. So just on a side note, if you want to get out of the Insider program, now's the time to do it. Uh, or if you want to get in, now's a great time to do it as well because you'll get the big patch update uh, that's supposed to be released here soon, you get a chance to see it. Boy, they're really adopting a lot of open source strategies, you know, between bringing Linux in, you know, and we know that Linux is open source, Chromium's, uh, you know, open source based, and Blink was the rendering engine, I think you were Blink. thinking of. Blink, okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. I wonder uh, how much more open source to something that's largely been, you know, proprietary. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, some of it's good and some of it's bad. Okay. Right? Like, um, uh, you know, if I run Fedora, Fedora Linux, and I'm on Fedora version 28 or version 30, like the numbers have gotten so high and the changes are so small between them that I can't really differentiate between the versions. If I sit down on a Fedora 28 machine and a Fedora 30 machine, it takes me a moment to figure out which version I'm on, right? Versus 
if I was on a Windows 98 machine and a Windows 2000 machine, it was incredibly obvious. You knew the difference. You could tell just by looking at it. So with this new six-month cycle that they're in, it's really hard to tell which version of Windows 10 am I on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be the the gold version that came out in what year did it come out in? Anyhow, years ago, uh, or it could be any of the number of updates. So from the support side, it's a little bit frustrating. Uh, from the end user side, it's nice that you don't have a major update they have to do every couple of years. Uh, it's, I guess, pros and cons. Yeah, and with them going away with that update, I can only imagine that would make patch management a little less complex. I'm sure it's still yeah. that got its complexities and challenges, but it seems like it would ease that burden too. So, so is is every major browser going to be on Chromium then, or they're still I mean, Safari still has their own thing. Okay. Uh, other than that, uh, oh, Firefox. Firefox, Firefox still yeah, has their own thing. Using their own oh, tech stack. I think I'm wrong with Safari. Safari did go Chromium, didn't they? Uh, I don't remember if they're still WebKit or not. They, they might still be WebKit. Uh, but but Mozilla, they definitely have their own rendering engine because they were upset about this change and they were saying like, well. Great. Now, if Microsoft and Chrome are using the same rendering engine, then you've basically given control of the internet over to, to Google. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, yeah, definitely something that uh, we'll keep an eye on as well, and and um, be curious to hear the first reviews as as people check that out because you know there, there's different features in each browser still. So if they're all rendering things the same way, finally, uh, you can back, actually pick based on on features and not just what will make the website actually show the way it's supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, over to ZDNet.com. Microsoft changes how Windows 10 disconnects USB storage devices. USB storage devices will be easier to remove, but will become slower. I don't know if that's a trade-off I'm I'm willing to to handle there. Well, this is more of a, it's changing just the default settings of the USB devices. Um, It's not like they're introducing or reinventing the wheel. It's just in the past, they've defaulted to uh, providing better performance by performing things like write caching and actually storing that information temporarily so that you can get on to better, more faster processes, more higher priority processes. Now what they're doing is the default is to optimize it for quick removal that says, hey, we're going to disable write caching so you don't get data corruption. And if you do end up pulling that device, again, it's just going to be faster. So I don't think this is really where they're they're, cha- they're changing a default setting more is in that they're bringing in a new technology. And the reason it's a big deal is that most end users will never change their USB properties, right? So they don't even think about that as an option. They don't know there's more than one mode. And so in the older mode, when you had USB 1.1, USB 2.0, they they were slow. It it took a long time to write data. So Microsoft optimized for performance. And that meant that if you wanted to remove a USB key, you had to go and right-click on it and choose eject or, or use a little system tray icon. If you just snagged it out, uh, potentially the file system could become corrupt. Your files could become corrupt. At a minimum, Windows would nag you. Hey, the device was improperly removed. You should remove it properly or, or whatever. So starting with that that cluster of an update, the 1809, uh, you know, they've changed that default now so that it doesn't do caching, which does make it slower, but it means that it completes its writes very, very quickly. And if you're on USB 3.0 or you know these newer, faster interfaces, you honestly won't notice the performance difference. The caching really wasn't helping all that much anymore. Uh, but you'll be able to snag a device out. And I tell you, I use it every single day here because I have a hard drive hooked up for doing um, file versions uh, or file history in Windows, so backing up my laptop. And I'll just snag off the cable and walk away. Uh, and otherwise, I'd have to go and eject it every single day. It would get annoying. Okay, so that, mm-hmm. that's my question, because any, anyone who's listened uh, to the show before or has heard me talk for uh, more than five seconds knows I'm not a very technical person. So uh, I have that, I mean, I'm on a, on a Mac, but when I uh, 
take my laptop off every time. Uh, even when I go and eject Time Machine, uh, it takes forever. And sometimes, and mm -hmm. even when I leave, when I see it gone, it still says you didn't, uh, you know, eject it properly. I've never had anything bad happen. Can you can you give me a, like a horror story where that one time you lost all the company's data? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. It, it boils down to the file system that you're using, really. You know, it, on a Mac, if you're doing the macOS journaled file system or the new APFS, uh, with those guys, they, they do journaling. So if data is half written when you unplug, it just throws away the part that was half written and, and your original file is intact. But in older file systems like FAT32 or even newer ones like XFAT, mm -hmm. right? They don't do journaling. So when you're writing a file... If it's halfway through writing it, it's halfway overwritten the file. And when you unplug, now you've got half the new file, half the old file. It's now a corrupted file. Gotcha. Uh, you can corrupt the file system table as well. And so you unplug that USB key, and the next time you plug it in, it says, hey, we don't recognize that disk. Would you like to initialize it? And that's it. The files are gone. You can try a recovery program. Maybe you can get it to recover, but... On, on flash storage, that's not usually the case. So that, that, that can't happen. Yeah. yeah, I've learned very early on in Mac, because I was always a Windows guy until I started, you know, became an edutainer here. We largely work on Macs, is that Mac will be picky. You don't eject a disk properly, and it won't recognize it. It won't even show you an icon when you plug it back in. You'll have to run it through the disk utility for first aid. Yeah, because I've been ignoring that warning message about as much as I ignore the uh, you have critical security updates. <laughs> uh, and you know, so far, things have been working out just fine for me and the North Koreans. They, they need to make the little notices a little more clickbaity, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you won't believe. Cobo, I'll click on that update. <laughs> you won't believe what happens when you install these updates. That's right. It's okay. We'll, we'll be posting your credit card information on Reddit uh, by noon. I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. Uh, I, I can go bid for it like everybody else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's move over now, switch gears to talk a little Google. Uh, this is over on TheVerge.com. Google dissolves AI ethics board just one week <laughs> after forming it. Uh, with the subheadline there, not a great sign. So uh, <laughs> how does this fit in with the uh, don't be evil thing? Or, or we've, I know we've dissolved that. As yeah. A, yeah, they dissolved don't be evil. As well. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it was last year that a bunch of Google employees kind of revolted because Google had landed a military contract to use some of their advanced search features for military use. And they said, hey, we don't want to develop weaponized stuff. The employees didn't want to. And so Google backed off of that contract and said, all right, well, you know, we'll we'll try and act a little more responsibly. And as they've continued to develop AI into a lot of their different products, their, their uh, augmented reality stuff, as well as their search engines and so on, uh, they decided it would be a good idea to put together a board of people uh, to help just measure the ethics of what they were doing and make sure that it was okay and help reassure, uh, reassure the employees that they were moving in the right direction. Um, something interesting happened, which is they built up a board that was actually really mixed. You had people that were pro-military contract and anti-military contract, people that were uh, you know, pro-privacy and anti-privacy, and, and so it was a mixed board. And again, the employees went nuts. They don't want a mixed board. They want it to be all people that are pro-privacy and anti-military. Uh, and Google found that it wasn't just a matter of like replacing one person on the board. It was basically lopsiding the entire board. And if you do that, then there's no point in having the board at all. And so they just decided, let's wipe it out. And so now it's gone and totally ineffective. So we're, we're sure it wasn't a robot that uh, dissolved the board because... That would be the first thing that I think AI would do. Well, I think now what they'll do is just when they have an ethics question, they'll just Google it 
and be like, is it ethical to do business with the Chinese military? Yeah. Wait, what does that come up with? I mean, now i got to find out. I'm going to Google that. Well, that's redundant. All right, let's, let's find out. Can we, I don't know that we want to show this one live. Huh? <laughs> right. Is, is it a ethical? safe search, John? Uh, you know, I always wondered this, like, but, well, we're allowed to do business with China. That's not like an embargoed country yeah, or anything. No, we're, we're, so uh, is it ethical to do business? There's just tariffs. With the Chinese <laughs> military. What What does Google tell me? Because this this could – we don't even need a board. Uh, and they don't really give me an answer. Uh, you don't punted. get a yes or no just from Google? You have to actually – Form your own opinions based on the results that they I do actually you. find a lot of articles about Google helping the Chinese military, though. So there, there's that. So apparently they don't fall under the Wassenaar arrangement. Uh, it's a Wassenaar, I think it's a – just certain countries that you can't uh, send uh, oh, encryption yeah. algorithms. Like and, Iran. And, exactly. Yeah. So apparently they don't fall under that. Let me, hmm. let me check what Bing says. <laughs> Bing, Bing says, yeah, do it. Yeah, it <laughs> says because it's Bing not Google. Go Would it. you like yeah. assistance says with that? go for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well. Sticking, said see Google. <laughs> see Google. Yeah, ask Jeeves. He might know. Um, <laughs> we got to download it first, though, 15 <laughs> exactly. times. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, go over to TechCrunch now. Uh, Google's hybrid cloud platform is coming to AWS and Azure. It, that's the competition, right? Yeah, you know, it's really funny, um, or funny to me at least. Hybrid cloud has been the like number one buzzword across my desk over the last five or six months. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft at Ignite last year made huge announcements about how you can have your on-prem data center connected to your Azure environment, and you can move VMs in between them and resources and, and access and manage everything through one pane of glass. Amazon came out with uh, Amazon, oh, shoot, I forgot the name of it, Fort uh, Bastion, something like that. Uh, <laughs> I forgot the name where where basically you connect your on-premises environment to AWS. Uh, and again, you can spin up instances and S3 buckets that reside right on-premise or move them up into the cloud and back and forth. So you've connected your on-prem with the cloud. Well, Google is the least popular of the three. They've got the smallest market share. And so they rolled out their hybrid solution, allowing you to connect on-prem with Google Compute or Google Cloud. But they went a step further and said, you know what, we're not just going to support on-prem, we're also going to support our competition. And so if you're deploying on Azure, you can connect that to Google Cloud. Or if you're deploying to AWS, you can connect it to Google Cloud. And you can use Google Cloud's management tools to manage both environments. You have one pane of glass, one place. So many people are saying, what happens if a cloud provider shuts me down? I lose everything. So I want to deploy on more than one cloud provider, but it's kind of a pain. Well, Google's removing that pain point. And this might actually turn out to be what helps propel them to be more popular. You might be fully embedded with AWS or fully embedded with, with Azure. And now you could bring up Google Cloud as a backup and say, all right, here's going to be my secondary. Let me start cloning resources over there. And because you just have one place to manage it, it removes that pain. Now, the one place to manage it is Google Cloud. So you are still learning a new tool set but you are getting the flexibility of those multiple environments. I think it's a great idea. I, I'm not the biggest fan of Google Cloud, but it's this kind of stuff that would make you want to move over there. So it's exciting to hear. Yeah, sounds like a smart move. And uh, I wonder if it's something that that, uh, that Azure and, and uh, AWS will will mimic themselves because you're right. I mean, when, when, when I think of hybrid cloud, I don't think of the on-prem and, and cloud. I think of multiple cloud environments and yeah, that's a that's a pain in the butt now. So AWS Outposts, that's what Outposts. it's called. I just Googled it real quick. All right. <laughs> that and the Chinese military. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, over on VentureBeat.com, our next article, you can now use your Android phone as a two-factor authentication security key for Google accounts. Yeah, FIDO support. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So yeah. um, 
So this is where it's actually just linking up directly to uh, to your account and gi giving like a PIN number or something on your phone, or so you know, or using the the authentication on your phone. Technically, the Google Authenticator is a two-step authentication okay. because you log in with your username and password, and then ask for a code. And that code might be sent to you via email, it might be texted to you, or it might be in your Google Authenticator, and then you enter that in. It's like a second step. With the phone, what they're doing is true two-factor. So you know, you're logging in and the phone is present, and both of those are checked. It's like a real-time thing. You've already got the authentication. So if you already have an Android phone, you can use that as an authentication source. And so you type in your username and password, it sees your phone is paired via Bluetooth or NFC, and it says, okay, this is definitely you because you have those two things, and it lets you in. So it's not requiring an extra step from you, but saying, yes, I see that the phone is, is connected to Bluetooth right now to the laptop, and, and so right. therefore you're good to go. I mean, That's if you weren't cool. connected, maybe there'd be an extra step you got to sure. get connected. But you know, they, they rolled this out on the Chromebooks first. Uh, last year on Chrome OS, they rolled out, um, I forget what it's called, something like a connected login or something where if you fire open your, your Chromebook and it sees your phone via NFC, then it says, oh, yep, this is you, and it just automatically unlocks the Chromebook, which is kind of a nice feature because typing in long passwords is a pain. Um, but they didn't have support for other things like YubiKey and all that, which uh, was kind of what, what led to this. Well, now using the Google phones is even better because you don't have to have a special key or, or even like Google's Titan key that they released. You don't have to have yeah. that. You just use your phone unless you have an iPhone, in which case. <laughs> well, it's funny because the last article I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I, I hope AWS does that. And this one, I'm like, oh, that, that's cool. I hope Apple does that because I've got my iPhone in my pocket and my, and my MacBook here, and that, that would be nice. Very good. Well, yeah. Apple's in full-on copy mode lately, so yeah, <laughs> maybe they'll do it. Who yeah, knows? And, you, and you, I don't even have to say, I hope Microsoft will do it because obviously <laughs> <laughs> they'll copy it. Uh, all right. Um, over, uh, yeah, uh, back to ZDNet now. Uh, Apache Web Server Bug grants root access on shared hosting environments. Companies using Apache on private non-shared servers are also at risk, but to a lesser degree. So, um, yeah, is this affecting uh, those cloud providers as well then? Absolutely. So um, this is a, it's a pretty big exploit. Uh, and the main moral, if you, if you pay no attention to anything else that we say, uh, the main thing is if you're using Apache in your environment, you need to update. So there is now a known remote exploitable uh Exploitable exploit? <laughs> Exploitable good. vulnerability. Sure. There we go. Uh, where uh, an attacker can gain root access to the underlying operating system via Apache. Uh, if you're using things like jails with Apache, that'll help protect from this. Uh, but if you're not, then in theory, you can gain access to the underlying system. For a for a regular enterprise or you know a business that's running Apache on a, a dedicated web server, it's just your one system. So it still gets compromised, that's bad, but it's not really any different than any other exploit. But in a hosted solution, this means that one customer could potentially access other customers' data or an attacker could access anybody's data that was running on that hosted system. And when I say a hosted system, I'm not normally, well, normally we are talking about things like AWS instances, but in this case, you've got to think about other services that provide Apache. For example, um, WP Engine or Pagely, those are some big WordPress hosting systems. Uh, GoDaddy has a number of like Drupal and Joomla sites that you can spin up at the drop of a hat. They're running Apache and they're serving up not just your Joomla site, but many other customers right on the same system. And so if you were to exploit this and gain root access to the underlying system, you would now have access to these other companies' pages too. That's a big deal, and that's something that you, you need to make sure it gets patched. So they're exiting that isolated, multi-tenant environment, and actually the VM escaping. They can get outside of that environment and use it to pivot 
to go elsewhere? Well, it's not VM escape. Mm. So if it's in a VM and you have a dedicated VM, mm. then it would just be your system, mm. right? Or if it's jailed, it would just be your system. But if those, those things aren't in place, then they'd be able to hit that one underlying OS and access everybody else's HTML files or, or you know whatever the, the Apache re, uh, repository is. So that's it's a little bit different. It's mm -hmm. not as sophisticated as like VM escape. And just to clarify, I mentioned I mentioned people like WP Engine. I, I really like WP Engine, and they've already patched for this. They're already taken care of. Most of the big hosting shops have already dealt with it. So we just need to worry about it on our own systems and make sure that they're patched. Yeah, so this isn't like a zero day. The patch exists now. People can, yes. can yep. go ahead and make that fix. Yeah, it went through responsible disclosure. Sounds good. Well, make sure you are doing that if you have an Apache system. Uh, next up at threatpost.com. TP-Link routers vulnerable to zero-day buffer overflow attack. So <laughs> mm. there we go. Yeah, Great even segue. Yeah, even authenticated users uh, could gain remote access control through the web interface, but that's always been a thing. You know, that's one of the reasons we say be careful with web access from an external location, because if you open that up, you open yourself, you know, the potential to be hacked yeah, or and, attacked. And in this case, it's bad because it's one that you can't really fix yourself. I mean, unless you're able to filter that traffic. Uh, so TP-Link, if you're not familiar with the brand, they are, are pretty popular in the home space because they make low-cost network equipment. It's actually pretty pretty reliable as far as that kind of stuff goes. Uh, but there's two models specifically. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, the yeah, W. The, oh, go you ahead. got it? No, go ahead. The WR940N and the TLWR941ND, those two routers. Uh, if you have one of those in your home environment, make sure you do a firmware update. They've already pushed a fix out for it, uh, so you can patch it and take care of it. But as we know, 99.99% of home users never update the firmware on their equipment. So if you have family members or friends, be sure to ask them what kind of router they have just to try and help out. Yeah, I don't think mine has firmware. Yeah. <laughs> right. You got rid of it? If it is, I haven't seen it. Yeah, okay. water it once a month. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that wrong? Yeah, the internet's been going down, too. Uh, all right, uh, over on Tom's hardware, the Intel Optane DIMM? DIMM. 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 Dual inline memory modules. Dual DIMM. inline yes. memory modules. Pricing, 695 for 128 gigs and 2595 for 256 7816 for 512. That yep. is impressive. And those are single sticks, by the way. That's not a <laughs> package of memory either. They, they're saying $8,000 for a 512 gig stick. What, what does it do? Or does it come in, a, in another hexagon? It's shiny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fancy package. Yeah, it's I, shiny. I wonder if it does. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm glad you asked, Peter, because for, uh, if you're a hardware junkie, you know all about Optane memory. Intel has been advertising the hell out of it for the last six months. But if you're not a hardware junkie, if you're just buying off-the-shelf computers or, or whatever, then this may have gone under the radar. But Optane is a new storage technology that Intel has been working with. Uh, is it Micron? Or th there's another company that's involved. Yeah. I can't remember who it is. Uh, where it is fast, fast, fast. And just to give you an idea, normally when we measure uh, data input-output rates, right, or, or IOPS, uh, we're measuring things on a, uh, like a spinning disk. Mm -hmm. They're measured in milliseconds, right? What's your seek time in milliseconds? When you're doing it on SSD, it's nano, or not, I'm it's, this backwards. When you're doing it in RAM, it's nanoseconds, mm -hmm. right? So milliseconds to nanoseconds, significantly faster. Well, Intel Optane memory is actually memory that can be used as storage that runs as fast as RAM, or uh, common RAM, not necessarily some of the faster stuff. Uh, so it's storage that can be used as RAM or storage. You kind of got that flexibility there. So it is lightning fast. And the example that, that Tom's Hardware gives 
is if you remember how big a speed boost you got when you went from a spinning disc to an SSD, I mean, it was night and day. They're saying when you go from SSD to Optane, it's the same thing. It is night and day. It is that much faster. So this is the future. It's been all over the hardware news. But to my knowledge, I've never seen pricing until now. And the pricing came out, and man, it is significant. Not, not to be surprised, really, because it is a cutting-edge new technology, but it is, it's pricey. So for uh, 500 gigs of storage, you're talking about 7,800 U.S. dollars that's a that's a good bit. Yeah, yeah, there's some charts down there on, if you want to bring those up as well, Don, uh, showing that that latency and the, the numbers that they've been given, <laughs> getting. Yeah, there's there's pictures. It does just look like memory, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know how many pins that is, but uh, and some of their servers support support up to twelve sockets, so you can get about. You, you, what they don't tell you there is that that would be a little bit more than eighty one thousand uh, dollars for to populate all twelve slots in that server. So eighty one thousand dollars for. Wow. That ramp. Yep. But it does, uh, it grows to uh, six terabytes. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that with that in mind, the fact that uh, we can lose the power to that, uh, you know, that storage location and still retain that data, and it's kind of bridging the gap between the RAM that you were talking about and the NAND flash chips, right? It's kind of in that in-between stage when we look at the performance, right? Not quite as high as RAM, yep. but certainly not as low as traditional SSDs. Yeah, and I've got the chart pulled up that Peter was mentioning, and you can kind of see where the, the Optane DIMM performs at about half the speed of DRAM in most scenarios. Not, not every scenario. But about half the speed. But even at half, that's still like 50 times faster oh, yeah. than regular storage. It's significantly faster than, than regular, even SSD storage. So it, it's a big deal. They're saying, and it hasn't been done yet, but, but they're saying that by the end of 2019, there are going to be laptops and other devices shipping with Optane memory in them. Uh, that'll be a big deal. You know, we just saw the NVMe revolution all happen over the last two years. So this is the next big step. So two or three years from now, this will probably become the, the standard uh, high-end option for laptops. Yeah, and this is maybe something we'll see in like supercomputers, you know, Servers, now if yeah. people are going to spend that kind of money. Well, yeah, well, JDEC's going to have to get on board too because while they do follow the JDEC standard, you know, the memory uh, uh, specification company, they're not they're not JDEC compliant. They do have their own special memory controller and more like an SSD controller to control obtained memory. So uh, there'll be a little bit of standardization that has to happen to make that you know, widely deployable, I'm sure. Yeah, I wonder what that's going to look like. Uh, you know, obviously, people like Dell or HP, they, they would jump in to support it because sure. they can sell their product. But for people that are on white-label boxes, I wonder how long it'll take before we see motherboards to support that. Yeah, and, you know, it's the data center, too. So they're combining that with, I mean, Intel came out with the ruler-sized SSDs. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these, but they literally look like a ruler. And if you haven't seen how the, 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 I guess, the form factor, they can put up to one petabyte of storage with these SSDs and then in combination with now we got up to six terabytes of RAM uh, in a one U server. So you can get up to a petabyte of storage and only take up a single one U or rack unit in your you know, in your data center. So uh, it's massive density, yeah. massive density. So in, in three to four years when we're all um, you know, just so used to this speed, I'll be able to look back at this moment. It's the first time I heard about Optane uh, from from Intel. So I'm trying way. to find a good picture of that Intel memory. Here we go. Just a quick Google search. Because uh, they renamed it. It's not called the ruler form factor anymore. Now it's like ED, EDSFF or something like that. Yeah, it's um, something crazy. But if we I call it, a, I call it the ruler. If you take a look at my screen, yeah. And that's oh, wow. what it actually was called originally, this big blade. Mm -hmm. And it's just 
packed full of super fast storage, and they even re- released an array where you could load it up if you had a million that, That's dollars. actually the array. That array is one unit, uh, or one oh, so U, each, if I read. Each of those horizontal lines are one of those slid in there? Yep. Yeah, and wow. that one that one server will, I believe, scale out to uh, uh, a single petabyte wow. in, in just that server. If I if I remember ninety six right. terabytes two fifty six terabytes wow yeah that's uh yeah that's some some big things that I won't be and, dealing with anytime soon and the connections too it's not an M two you might see that at the top uh, right there it says U two that's not the band uh, but yeah <laughs> U two is essentially kind of like the, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's kind of like the M two uh, but M two is residential where U two is uh, you know it's got all the same features but a lot of the more enterprise level features too uh, that we don't typically don't find unless you're talking about things like SAS drives and stuff. Yep, and a quick thank you to Anantech, which is where that image came from. Just yeah. Uh, yeah. Fair. I'm still trying to get you two out of my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> it's Apple. taken you 10 when, years. When Apple pushed that, that record out. I can't believe it. Tim Apple did that. I know. <laughs> we all need to have the Tim weird Apple. finger uh, Elliot-type touch <laughs> at the end. If you play that slow, Don actually says, Tim Cook from Apple. It just really yeah, condensed just, quick. Yeah. Uh, all right, over at... Uh, the best designed website we'll go to today, um, <laughs> guru3d.com, which uh, is just in 2D. Um, maybe I'm, I don't have the glasses on. Uh, the article here, uh, Intel launches Ethernet 800 Series 100 Gigabyte E. Ludicrous speed. Let's go. PCIe yeah. cards. Mm-hmm. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is that an L? No. Well, that's that's unlike the 500 and the 700, which were what uh, 10 gigs and 40 gigs, right? Yeah. No? So you know, most most uh, companies, enterprises have standardized on gigabit Ethernet for workstations, but then on our servers, we now have uh, 10 gigabit Ethernet, which is pretty common. 40 gigabit Ethernet, which is less common. We're seeing that used in in storage area networks as well as uh, uplinks between switches. And now 100 gigabit. A little odd that it didn't jump to 80, and that's because they're doing it a slightly different way. Uh, but up to a 100 gigabit uh, uh, bandwidth you know, available on these new adapters. And that's super, super impressive. I mean, you can take that connection and subdivide it up into multiple like VLAN interfaces or you know, uh, like a, if you're doing a... Uh, a trunk of some sort, and divide it up until it looks like 10 different 10-gig connections. Or if you just need a straight-up 100-gig connection, maybe it's a file server or something that's moving a huge amount of data, those cards are now out and on the market. You can purchase them. Do be aware that 100-gig switches do exist but are actually insanely expensive. Uh, I don't think they announced the price of this card, did they? Uh, I didn't see it. Oh, uh, coming third quarter of 2019, yes. I would say probably a few zeros to the left of the decimal point. And that's uh, that's not an Ethernet port, right? That's an SFP optical. Oh, it's an Ethernet port, but it's fiber optic. It's probably running uh, some kind of fiber switch. They're, they're SFP ports. Yeah. Oh, oh gotcha. so and and no one was it, impressed that I knew that. I, I, I just scrolled no, down that, to that the comments. Really, <laughs> but I, I was trying to pretend like I actually recognized that. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming because it doesn't say. I'm assuming they're SFP plus. And you know, the reason we normally see those connectors is you are expected to use fiber. Uh, and when you pop the fiber connector in there, you can buy the right connector for what you're trying to do. So if you're going to plug into a 10-gig system, you can get a 10-gig SFP versus a 100-gig one. Uh, you know, I haven't seen the actual standard for those yet, but obviously you use the wrong SFP. It's not going to work. Uh, the copper adapters, I'm pretty certain they don't make those. Like I've never seen the copper adapter for anything above 10-gig. 
Uh, I don't know if that means they don't exist or they're just not popular. The cabling is just so astronomically expensive. And, you know, you know, and I'm sure if you don't know, uh, fiber op or that kind of speed doesn't tolerate transmission errors. Mm -hmm. So electromagnetic uh, interference, uh, the cables, I believe, get a little bit too expensive. And the higher your frequency, the higher the temperature, too, sure, right? So cables sure. can only handle a certain temperature. Now, Don, you've worked in, I know you've worked in many of uh, data centers before. Do you see these becoming commonplace where we will even be saturating these, just given the, oh, the movement of information? Certainly. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, the way I normally see bandwidth like this roll out is it usually starts on your switch uplinks, mm. right? So the uplinks that run between buildings on a campus or, or even between two switches in the same rack, like that's where you'll start to see this. Uh, and then it'll move into the, the server world, focusing on things like storage servers where you have huge amounts of bandwidth that move. Uh, then eventually it starts to trickle out to all of your servers. And after 10 or 15 years, it makes it down to the desktop and workstation side. That's kind of the normal pattern. Uh, and after about 20 years, it then makes it over to your internet connection. <laughs> so that's usually far behind. All right. This wasn't covered in uh, CompTIA IT fundamentals, so I, I'm not, no. not familiar with any of this. Uh, can we bring that uh, up one more time? I want to see sure. how this looks on your screen. No? Okay. Yeah, see, are you on Are you on Chrome? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Chrome. Yeah, I've got those those three little uh, stars scroll over to the next line on, on the size of my laptop. That's just great design. Um, but yeah, you, oh, only yeah. Get, you only get two stars. <laughs> it looks even... I'm probably zoomed in. Well, no. Yeah, no. All right, well... It's it's just it's just great design, but it's not in three D. That's really the main thing. Yeah, False it's advertising. Upsetting. It's upsetting. Right off the bat, I was all excited. <laughs> and, and I put on these special glasses. You know, a question about the. Uh, I'm a hardware guy, so I love you know just hardware in general. Um, where do you see these? Do you see these uh, interfering at all with not interfering, I guess, but competing with fiber channel at all? Because fiber channel is extremely fast already, but it's a long distances compared to, and the scalability is a lot better than Ethernet. I. I assume, but do you see this becoming a competitive challenge? Well, you know, fiber channel itself is usually short distances. Uh, well, hang on, let me, let me clarify, right? When we talk about fiber channel, we're normally talking about things like SANs, storage right. area networks. So your servers in the SAN are usually in the same location. I mean, you can get fiber run miles and miles down the road to the next city over, uh, but that's not normally fiber channel because you're not pushing storage over it. Uh, you can get dark fiber and do it, but that's not really what we usually do. Gotcha. So in those cases, it's fiber channel over Ethernet. Uh, so you're doing Ethernet on the fiber link and pushing fiber channel encapsulated in Ethernet to go that way. Uh, you could certainly do it here. The encapsulation is what slows that down, not so much the speed of the line. So I, I, I think that you'll still see fiber channel over Ethernet used on these 100-gig connectors. But uh, on the storage side of things, when you buy a SAN, like if you get an EMC SAN and you start connecting servers to it, they – when you have an HBA, like a fiber HBA, and you're connected to it, some of them do use Ethernet on those networks, but most of them don't. They use other layer two technologies, layer two protocols, and so they're not Ethernet, mm. and which means these adapters might not even work in that environment. Now, I'd be shocked if, if they didn't develop this where it worked uh, in those areas, but that's why if you go and look at fiber channel cards for a SAN, you'll see weird bandwidth numbers. You'll see uh, 4 gigabit, 8 gigabit, 16 gigabit that you don't normally see under Ethernet. And it's because they're doing raw data transfers, and it's just using a different protocol. Okay. Yeah. This, to me, uh, was like that first year that you got up upgraded from the kids' table at Thanksgiving. And then, you know, the adults are talking about, like, the latest tax plan or something. <laughs> and it means nothing. I, I just got nothing there. But uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you guys seemed excited, so I'm excited for yeah. you. Thank you. Thank um, you. That we've got big things coming. You can just live it'll, through It'll us. be in the next PlayStation 4. That's right. Oh, man. Whatever that's that right. Is. Cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's head over to the register.co.uk. Um, raise some horns. Red Hat's Metal Cube. Cube? Cube? Yep. Cube. Cube. 
aims to make Kubernetes on bare machines simple. Open source project borrows a bit of or bits of OpenStack. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of confused on this one. All right, so uh, Kubernetes. Got the horns. Right? Got the horns. Uh, <laughs> it's just metal, right? Yeah. Uh, we've got to have a Judas Priest song play or something. Uh, I don't know why that was the first metal band. I yeah, just said Slayer that probably cool. wouldn't have been my choice, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think the lamest band. Uh, Winger. So, you know, Winger song's playing. All right, Stuart. <laughs> so, so uh, Kubernetes is really a, a wildly popular container management solution. And the problem is deploying it's kind of annoying, right? There's a lot of moving pieces in there. There's different versions you can run. You can get... Uh, platforms from different providers, but Google has put their weight behind Kubernetes, and so it's really jumped up there and become popular. Well, if you take a solution like VMware, with VMware, I can get ESX or ESXi, install it on some hardware, and throw some VMs on it. Like, ESXi is all I need on that hardware. The install takes all of five minutes, and now I can throw VMs on there. So it's simple to deploy. And what, what MetalCube is looking to do is make Kubernetes the same way, to create a simple image where you just throw it right on the hardware. It takes five minutes, and now you're ready to deploy containers on there. You've got a fully operational Kubernetes environment on bare metal, and you can get containers up and running. It's a direct competitor to VMware ESX. Like Instead of full-blown VMs, now you're throwing containers on there. Developers are already working in a container format, so it's actually easier for the developer to deploy on this than it would be on an ESX server. So on-prem, that's a big deal, right? But even in the cloud, if you've got a Kubernetes-managed system, if you're using Google Cloud or, or Amazon's uh, Kubernetes environment, then you could be working with containers locally on MetalCube and then just ship those same containers right over to your cloud environment, and they deploy and they run just fine because they were developed both in that same environment. Automation scripts that you write would all be the same and interchangeable. It's just all about being easy. Now, this is an early project for Red Hat. They don't have a ton of people assigned and working on it. So we're going to see it evolve more over the next year. But I could definitely see this becoming a direct competitor to any kind of on-prem virtualization. I like how they did the name too, the metal. I was, well, how did I get the name metal? Oh, bare, bare metal. metal. Yep. Oh, my God. Very good. Very good. Oh, and by the way, uh, he was talking about hybrid cloud there, Peter, just so you oh, know. Yeah, I knew that word. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And, uh, and there's drones and uh, artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah, man. Machine That's learning. Great. And winger. <laughs> and winger. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks. Thanks for all that. For yeah, you're, you're welcome. Coming it down for the kids here. <laughs> I'm going to go get seconds. Uh, all right. Uh, our final article of the day before we get to our interview, which is coming up here in just a second. Uh, this one is on uh, your favorite local news station, WBRZ2 ABC of where? Um, you know, sadly, I was going to say before the show, I did not check what city this was. I just Secaunca's thought it was a cool headline. New Jersey. Oh, OK. Well, no, that's where the article's from. But that looks like, is that like it Louisiana says Secaunca's High there? School? Is if it? that's how you pronounce it. OK. Yeah, it's the caucus. Yeah, but it's got news about Leonard Fournette and the. I think this is like uh, Louisiana, isn't that what that? See the local radar on the on the on the right there. You don't have that. Um, yeah. I've got I've got the the weather. I've got an ad here. blocker on, so you're probably looking at an advertisement weather, telling you you're in Louisiana. The weather's showing me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, this is New Orleans. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, anyway. I know I know W's. Um, are anything east of the Mississippi, and the K's are west of the Mississippi. What are W's and K's? D this is WBRZ. Is that true? Yeah, like yeah. KTRH over in, in Houston, or WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, is that what I Lonnie never was knew on? that. Have you ever I noticed that everything never known here that. in yeah. Florida is a W? So is WKRP like right on the it's Mississippi? In Cincinnati. <laughs> I don't know. If, <laughs> when the signal crosses, it's KKRP. Uh, but anyway... Uh, 
I, I'm missing the whole point here. The weather uh, in in Mississippi uh, today, it's going to be cloudy and uh, and chance of spotty Wi-Fi. I'm like trying to get back to the article, and it keeps bringing me back to the weather. Okay, uh, two students accused of jamming school's Wi-Fi network to avoid tests, and so I guess this is the. Uh, the, the future in the old days, you went to the payphone in school, yeah. and you called in the bomb threat, and yep. then they moved. For some reason, they moved all the students out to the football stadium, which I was always saying, why they would just put a bomb there. But yeah. that's yeah. beside the point. Um, that, that my school in high school had a terrible uh, bomb threat uh, response plan to put all the students in one place. But uh, I guess this is the new bomb threat now. But I'm, I'm assuming, I guess the test. Do, do tests take place over Wi-Fi now? They must have been computer-based tests. Yeah. You know, this might be an all-iPad school or sure. a bring-your-laptop school. And so if it's a computer-based test and you shut Wi-Fi down, that's a great way to dodge a test right there. Well, i got to tell you, they might have failed that test, but they should pass an engineering test just in, just for the creativity. <laughs> Give them some Yeah, these effort. are like the kids that they say, all right, you're in trouble. You're suspended for two weeks. When you come back, uh, we'd like you to work on the yeah, network team yeah. here. At the- <laughs> you, you, you failed out at school, but let me tell you, at Hackathon, you're going to do amazing. Yeah, you're hired by the FBI. That's right. That's right. Google's got a bug bounty for you. Now, I'm curious. The article, obviously, was made for general consumption, so mm-hmm. we don't we don't have the details on how they did it, right? Uh, and I'm thinking that there's two methods. So one, they could have generated uh, you know, wireless interference, like actually done a jammer, which is illegal and mm-hmm. would have gotten them in trouble with a number of organizations, federal organizations. Mm-hmm. I think that is immediately a felony, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly. So that, that'd be a big deal. Or they could just be doing a deauth attack, right? Where they're deauthorizing every session. Oh yeah. If, yep. if they've got the SSID and the password, mm-hmm. they, you don't even need the password really to do a deauth. Uh, and so they could have just been doing that. And those are pretty easy to pull off. So that's what I suspect happened here. Which means they did at least ten minutes of googling to make this happen, and that's effort. Uh, <laughs> it know, says I, they they are charged with computer criminal activity yeah. and conspiracy. So yep, it's um, not your yeah, network. So what they whatever they did here was in fact criminal, but. Uh, uh, even more important news, uh, I have confirmed that uh, WBRZ is in Baton Rouge. And I should have known that from the BR. And the Z. Well, Baton Rouge. Like Zatarains, right? The- <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, the wrong person to ask. You know, when there's letters that shouldn't be pronounced, I pronounce them. Mm-hmm. So why are they showing a picture of Secaucus High School? And that could be the name of the school still. Maybe it's, but no, this says, okay, so this was in The Secaucus, same two New students Jersey. actually <laughs> hacked the website. But for some reason, as well. Don said. You know the story about New Jersey? I want to see what the local Baton Rouge station has to say about well, it. Well, you're the one who found this link, I did you? not find this link. <laughs> oh, maybe this one magically appeared. I'm, you know what? I'm blaming Adam Gordon. Ever since we had Adam Gordon on this show, <laughs> our, our Slack channel where we talk about what stories to talk about has been just Adam's soliloquy uh, of all of his things, and, and we're just kind of wading through it to find... Uh, the articles we want to cover, but but thank well, you, Adam, um, yeah. for for this article. I'm assuming. All right. Well, it is nice to see a security article though that is not like somebody was trying to steal your identity and share your information with the Russians. It was just a couple of kids trying to get out of an exam. You know, those old youngsters, Kid, kids being kids. That's right. you know. And uh, and speaking of people trying to get into your network and and mess your stuff up, uh, that's a big problem apparently for executives at companies because when you think about it, they're not the most technically savvy people necessarily. You could be a CFO, a, um, a CEO, and and you maybe don't have that technical background. Uh, and that is where um, uh, Sipient Black comes in, and we're going to be talking with Nathan, Nathan Lesser about that in just a moment and what they're doing for executives uh, to help keep their network secure at, at home. So uh, that's coming up right after this, right here on TechNado. Music. 
My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians to a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn. I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team. It's just a great tool uh, for any IT professional. All right, welcome back to TechNado. And as promised, we have an interview coming all the way from just outside our nation's capital up in Washington, D.C. We have Nate Lesser from Sipian Black joining us. How are you doing today, Nate? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, for joining us. And so uh, Sipient is uh, Sipient is something I've, I'm not too familiar with. Uh, you know, I've done some, some research as we were um, getting prepared for this, but it, it's a pretty new company. So why don't you tell the people uh, watching a little bit about what you guys do? Sure. So we are a new company. We're a, a product startup here um, just outside D.C. And what we're building is an executive protection platform. So we've really looked at the challenge that started to emerge a couple of years ago when attackers, just like in the, in the security, the cybersecurity world, just like in the real world or, you know, even any of us who are going through our daily lives, they look at things like the well-protected enterprise and see that that's a hard target. And attackers don't like to do things that are hard. The rest of us also feel the same way. We'd prefer to do something easy rather than something hard. And so when looking at the well-protected enterprise, realizing that's a hard target, attackers have started to shift focus to targeted and directed attacks on the personal lives of high-value targets within that enterprise. So rather than going directly at a company and trying to breach its defenses. They do research on the individuals who run that company, those who have high level access within that company, and then launch attacks on their digital personal lives. Unfortunately, the personal lives of all of us, including those that are on that that have this high level access, are not nearly as well protected because we effectively, as you know, we the cybersecurity community, we effectively have said here's how you should take care of it for yourself rather than providing that sort of strong suite of enterprise grade capabilities. And that's the challenge that we're looking to address. You know, over the last year, we've seen a big uptake in like phishing attacks and things. And, and we've seen a little more recently spear phishing where they're specifically targeting the, targeting the executives. And I hadn't really thought about family members and, and people outside. So is this all grouped under spear phishing or is this a, a new type of attack? Well, so I think the spear phishing is a, is a single example of these types of attacks, but we're seeing attacks on IoT devices and attacks on home networks, attacks on online accounts and identity and reputation, some of which are launched through spear phishing attacks, but others use vulnerabilities that are baked in some cases even into the firmware of devices that we put in homes. And those kinds of attacks can be used both to pivot into the enterprise, right? You, you compromise somebody's personal devices or personal technology, personal accounts, and you can use that to pivot and attack the enterprise. Or in some cases, you can simply have an impact on the enterprise by compromising the individual and blackmailing them or even less insidious, but, but more common, using that as a reputational attack, which has significant blowback from an enterprise uh, risk posture perspective. All right, so that's going to be like a lot bigger than just an email at that point, right? People are, are digging through any number of sources to be able to find information about that executive, their family, the people they associate with, targeting a home network. I mean, this, this is something that's pretty widespread. There's a number of different technologies involved. So how, how do you guys step in and protect all of that? Because it, I imagine no two executives have the same 
home life or home setup or, or even software utilities, cell phone? It, it's got to be pretty disparate, right? Right. It's a great question. The, the answer is that we've already solved the problem, right? We as a community have really already solved this problem. We've solved it in the enterprise. So if you think about each individual family, family unit as a different company, then what you need to do to protect that family unit is deploy the same capabilities that we have for the company across every individual family unit. So that includes the, the family members of a high value target. It includes their devices, their online accounts, their identity and reputation, and their home networks. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about. Yes, it's disparate pieces of technology that we're protecting, but just like the way we implement security capabilities in the enterprise, we kind of solve the problem already. We have a lot of great technology that the community's built in order to provide those capabilities and address those challenges. What we're seeing is that attackers are launching just as sophisticated attacks on the individual personal lives of high value targets. And so we need just as strong capabilities to address those, those challenges. So deciding to, to start a business and, and branch out and create something new is, is a big step. So was there something that, that, uh, that happened that, that led you to to make this move, or um, did you just see that that hole in the market and, and saw somewhere where you guys could uh, could make an impact? It's a great question. It's kind of a combination of things. I, I personally have always sort of had that in my DNA, um, but I was at NIST um, in my last uh, job before starting my own company, and uh, I, so NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and while there I worked at something called the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which was this, the, is really the Cybersecurity National Lab. Um, and that gave me an opportunity to see the, the, really the breadth and depth of both the cybersecurity capabilities that we've built as a community and the challenges that are, are facing the constituents that we're trying to serve. And when you think of it, about it from a community perspective, we've really built great, strong capabilities, both technical um, and in terms of frameworks, things like the NIST cybersecurity framework for critical infrastructure, um, risk management, policies and procedures. And, and we've put together an incredible corpus of, of security capabilities. Unfortunately, those really are designed for the enterprise. And then when we turn around and get questions from people, uh, individuals who say, I'm worried about security in my, in my home. I'm worried about my own personal security. I'm worried about spear phishing attacks. I think that's a great question. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about protecting my children. I'm worried about them online. What should I do? Our answer is, well, here's a top 10 list of things that you should worry about. And unfortunately, that's the same thing as saying, Cybersecurity is really hard, so you should all be good at it, right? That's a kind of inane approach. Any other field, any other job where somebody says, my job's really hard, I have, I, I have to work hard at my job, and I have to have a really specialized skill set, they don't then turn around and expect me to be good at their job. They'll, they'll do it for me. And that's, uh, the, that was sort of the kernel, the fundamental um, realization that we came to before founding Cypian Black. So let's let's uh, let's throw Peter under the bus here. I'm going to use him as an, ex an example. Oh, fantastic. Um, we have a, a bit of a, <laughs> a running joke here because I, we, we know that at home, Peter has a webcam that has a known exploit. <laughs> it's a great webcam. But <laughs> only for research purposes, right? That, that's right. That's right. So uh, uh, for someone like him, obviously, he's a target of little or no value. But but assuming that he, he actually was, um, at, at your home, you, you've got 
You've got a, a Mac, or at least your work laptop I do. that yeah. you take home. You've got uh, cable broadband, I think, is what you use. Are you socially engineering uh, me right now? Yeah, I know. We're, we're <laughs> going to figure it all out. I do, and my uh, password is. Well, you know, you're, 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 your daughter has computers. Mm-hmm. Visitors come over. They bring computers over. Uh, you know, it's probably an Apple TV, maybe a Roku, a printer, you know, a lot of different devices, that, that webcam on the network. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, if we engaged with, with Sipian and said, all right, here's this target of value inside of our organization – if you're not giving them a top 10 list, then, then what exactly are you doing? You know, what is it that you do to help him resolve that? Uh, and I think you're a good example, Peter, because you, you, you. Know, you're not a cybersecurity professional. No, I'm not. So, Right. So the, uh, that's, that's a great question. It's a great example. Um, we take that top 10 list and we built a, a technology stack. So we've, we've built the product around uh, the list of most important capabilities that we think need to exist in order to protect what we refer to as our protectees, uh, the individuals. And again, we think of that as a, as a unit, right? So it's a, a, typically an executive, their family members, and all of their devices, home networks, online accounts, and identity and reputation. Now, we already have individual technologies to help us protect each of those piece parts. What we've done is bring that together into a single platform that's delivered in a concierge fashion. So we actually have boots on the ground in in Peter's home, right? We'll have people there um, who do the network setup and deploy the hardware and configure the software and bring it all back into our connected platform so that he is getting the complete set of capabilities that you would see in a typical enterprise of any significant size. And it's managed by a team of professionals. And that's the challenge, right? Unfortunately, and I keep coming back to this idea that, you know, we, the cybersecurity community, because I include myself in that community, and it also gives me an opportunity to point out some of our failings. One of those is that we've built technology in this, when we say enterprise grade, it means it's really strong, but it only works as long as you've got an entire team maintaining it. And if you don't have that team, you can't do anything with it, right? So we've come into some of our protectees' homes and seen a $15,000 firewall sitting in their basement with one allow rule on it. And that's effectively the same thing as saying, okay, I'm gonna take a large paperweight and attach a bunch of fans and suck down a lot of energy and use it as a doorstop. Um, Of course, these are people who have other professional aspirations, who have impressive day jobs and aren't cybersecurity professionals. The idea that we would expect them to be seems really crazy to me. Now, you mentioned that, that you guys would manage it, which you know, I always love that when it's a managed service. I don't have to deal with it. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to think of, of some of the advantages of that. Uh, for a home user, I, there's products out there like Silence, right, that, that we know Silence works. It's a great way to, to whitelist applications and protect your system. But you can't buy five licenses of Silence. You have to buy 500 licenses. You know, they, they deal mm-hmm. with the bigger accounts. So by you guys managing it, are you – are you able to leverage the the bigger enterprise grade software for these small installs, or is it all tied to an enterprise's licenses they already have? What, what does that look like? Oh, that's a good question. So it's tied to we we function as the enterprise. That's exactly right. And and Silence is a good example. They've got a great EDR. Um, there are a bunch of other ones out there. Um, and while you think about the difference between home AV and enterprise grade EDR, it's pretty significant. You can actually, we've seen some really good examples of malware that gets caught by um, our EDR. And when we you know, send it through um, VirusTotal, we, we can see which other products wouldn't have caught it and discover that 
no home AV will ever catch this because they're tuned to have a really low false positive rate which makes sense, right? If you're a home user and all of a sudden you're getting alert after alert after alert, you get frustrated and give up, right? What you need is a team managing it so that you can catch the ones that really matter, but not get frustrated by the false positives. And that's the only way that we think that in today's technology world, you're really gonna uh, be able to address the, the, the challenges associated um, with having sophisticated attackers going directly at high value targets within an enterprise. Now, if our, if our organization is big enough and we have our own SOC, then you know, we may have a, a seam in place that's monitoring all the logging and security information for our internal, sure. you know, for our corporate assets that are at the headquarters or at our branch offices. Are, are we able to connect that to you as well to get that so we still have centralized logging even though that's a fully managed solution? Nope. <laughs> um, and it's a great, I know I love this question because it's a really critical component of what we've, of what we built. Um, we don't connect to the enterprise period, right? That's, that's the full stop. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's the same reason that enterprises, many of which are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on cybersecurity today, don't provide this protection to the individual executives, to the individuals within their organization and their family members. You can imagine how that conversation would go. You guys say, hey, Nate, we'd like to hire you to be our new COO. And I say, oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to get started. And then you say, well, after we've gone through all of this process, the only thing that we didn't discuss before is that we need to be able to, to, to make this job offer. We have to be able to monitor your home network, your personal devices, your spouse's online account, your kid's uh, Xbox. Sounds that's like a great plan. Issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I'm, I'm, I, immediately, there's this you know, obvious privacy barrier. And even more so, when we talk to enterprise customers, they look at it and their general counsel say, you're not allowed to have, are you nuts? You're never having home network logs inside this company. That is a total non-starter for us. So CISOs are left to say, that's not my job. I can't do, you, yes, I, I get it. My CEO being hacked is really bad for the company, right? Or her uh, kids being hacked that's really bad for our company, but there's nothing I can do about it because I'm not allowed to make their network another node on our network. I'm not allowed to protect those home devices or bring that log information in back into our SOC. And so we have a very bright privacy boundary there. Um, and we're proud of the work that we've done around privacy engineering and our privacy policy is up on our website for anyone to see. And we think we've done a, done a really good job on that front. So uh, I'm curious. I think I've made a mistake a couple times, and uh, I've, I've just referred to you guys as Cypian, uh, but you're Cypian Black. So can you kind of Sorry. explain the relationship um, with with Cypian? To, is this is yeah. like Uber Black? I mean, you guys are for the executives. The, the <laughs> fancy right. people don't right. use the normal. Uh, Cypian is a is a consulting company, um, and we provide a wide array of you know advisory and enterprise services there. Um, and Cypian Black is is our uh, executive protection platform. Okay, so so the the parent company kind of goes beyond just the executive side, and this is one specific product within that that umbrella. Yeah, they're technically two separate companies, but one okay. is one is a is a pure play uh, platform and uh, and technology company, and the other is uh, advisory services. Gotcha. Yep, and just for clarification, no relation to Carbon Black, right? Uh, you know, I, I, there's this great online tool. I have to. I can never remember what the the URL is for it, but that effectively says it, it's the uh, how to make a name for a cybersecurity company. <laughs> it's like one from column A and two from column. No, unfortunately, we Carbon Black's a great company, um, and we have there's no relationship to them. 
Yep. When I said silence earlier, I, I was going to say carbon black first, and I was like, "Wait, that's going to be confusing." Let me switch. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let me let me go back to the example we were doing a moment ago about that executive. You know, that you're you're protecting their home. You hire you onboard somebody, and you want them to still have their privacy, but not share that information with the corporation. So, what what happens in the opposite scenario? So now that executive is leaving the company, maybe. Maybe it's a positive thing they're retiring or maybe they got fired for whatever. Uh, what does that process look like? So it's the same as health insurance. Um, you know, effectively, we see this as an executive benefit. If you come in as an employee of a company and the company buys 10 licenses of Cypian Black to cover its senior executives and then one of them leaves, which you know happens in the course of any kind of business, um, you can COBRA. You can pay for it yourself out of pocket in order to keep the service running. Um, of course, you can terminate the service. Um, at the, There's a point at which we're a little bit entrenched in your life, um, but certainly you can cancel the service and uh, and and you know the the uh, it, it get disconnected. Um, and you can also, you know, what we hope will continue to happen is bring us with you to your next employer and convince them to become a Cypian Black customer. So just to make sure I got that right, uh, it is covered by Obamacare? <laughs> That's right, exactly. It's called the Affordable we're, Care we're Act. listed in the ACA. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is coming. Yeah, this, it's going to uh, the Supreme Court right now. Well, yeah. you know, that, that's a, a neat aspect, though, is that uh, even though they've detached from the company, they could still maintain the service with you guys. And it, it, it kind of makes me wonder, could a – let's say an executive is listening to our podcast right now, and they hear about the service, and – could they engage with you just with them personally and say, I'm looking for this kind of service to protect me not involving the company? We do sell to individuals. Um, normally, our, 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 our approach is to sell through the enterprise um, because fundamentally we think that the risk isn't just borne by the individual. Right. We have uh, high net worth individuals who we protect. We've got people who are high profile for whatever reason um, and are worried about the risk themselves. And certainly that's a real component and something that everyone we think needs to be concerned with. And and I, I do want to talk about our kind of vision for the future. Um, but today, with the executive protection platform, we can provide that to individuals or as a uh, you know multi-license uh, package to the enterprise. Yeah, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about that vision for the future? That I'd, I'd love to hear that. Well, so Cypian Black is built around the idea that cybersecurity should be simple, right? It is hard. And unfortunately, the reality of putting in place all of these controls that protect you from every type of attack out there is a really challenging thing to do. And yet, uh, you know, coming back to what I was saying before, we expect every individual out there to be good at it. And the crazy thing is that we, you know, beyond that, which I said before, we then turn around and blame the victim. Oh, you got hacked? I don't understand. How is it you weren't patching your systems? Well, of course you had that device in your in your home that had a known vulnerability. Why were you using that? I, I can't I can't believe you've got cryptoware. Why didn't you back up your systems? It, it's kind of a ridiculous refrain, right? And so our belief is that um, with the executive protection platform, we kind of see this in the Tesla model. That's our that's a, the equivalent of our Roadster, right? This is our first product. It is high end. It's concierge. It's expensive. In order to get the kind of information out of our platform that allows us to continue improving our, our automation uh, and continue to improve our delivery, we have to start somewhere. And that's, that's where we chose to start. As we get better at those things, particularly the automation of the delivery and the automation of the um, analysis on the back end, 
we're looking to push downstream other products so a company could in fact buy a site-wide license for all employees. Today, that would be prohibitively expensive. But in the future, we envision this being a core part of what most companies will provide to employees as part of their benefits package. You come here, you get great health insurance, and we'll provide cybersecurity for you in your home. All right, for everybody just tuning in, we are interviewing Nate Lesser with Sipient Black and learning about how we can protect our executives. And uh, you know, I got a, a couple of questions kind of popped into mind while you're talking about the future direction of this. We have been talking about executives uh, a lot of this time because they are a great target. But for companies that have uh, uh, just big public figures, right, not necessarily <laughs> – uh, I, I'm thinking like congressmen, really, where mm -hmm. if you're a, a first-year congressman, you're not a giant company. I mean, sure, there's some voter dollars behind you, but uh, you know, those are people that would want to be protected as well. And some of those people, especially when you get into the celebrity space, they're people that might be willfully doing things that are uh, not proper IT security practices, right? So uh, what's the, or does this even occur where you have somebody who's maybe running BitTorrent or downloading files or things like that out of their home and they're, they're doing it on purpose because they, they want to reach out and do that, but you would obviously identify that there's the potential for malware to come in or, uh, you know, using a VPN service could be routed through China, all those different things. So if you're actively blocking something like that, does the executive or celebrity or whoever have to reach out and call you guys to to find out to open that or they just get stopped and that's the end of it what what flexibility is there on their access well okay so there are a couple of different things going on here right so i i, I love the question um and i want to answer three different questions so i'll do my best <laughs> i rambled on a um, bit. <laughs> i think you, well it was great it was great so so you talked about uh political figures certainly that's within scope from our perspective um the challenge as you said is often sort of who's paying and how does that work um we today have not figured that out but uh if you have any ideas on that front we'd be happy to, to talk to you about that offline um the the other question that i think was really the core part of what you were asking about is how do you address issues of exemptions, of differences, of, you know, moving, you're saying, I'm saying we can provide this as a single product that exists the same way across all these different environments. And yet when somebody wants to do something that's really off the wall, what do you do about it? And the answer is, is kind of twofold. I'm going to end up punting on it a little bit. <laughs> um, the, the first part is it turns out that the security capabilities that we deliver um, actually don't require uh, so much, uh, they, it, we don't, it doesn't require different technology in the stack, we have to configure it differently. So, you know, to connect to and protect a Windows device is slightly different from connecting to and protecting a Mac OS device. But, you know, an Android's different from iOS. But fundamentally, they're the same core set of configurations you want to deploy. They're the same core set of capabilities. And the technology stack we use works across all the major platforms. Um, the, the other part to your question is, you know, this, your BitTorrent example or something uh, different, we, we focus on providing these capabilities in a way that requires as little behavioral change from our protectees as possible. And that's one significant difference. You know, I was really referring to our technology stack as the same kind of capabilities you'd see in the enterprise. That's true. However, in an enterprise environment, the company has the ability to protect, uh, to dictate behavior in a way that we really feel we can't in people's personal lives. So when it comes to protecting someone's phone, we do as little as possible 
that will even appear different, right? We don't move people's apps around, for example. That that causes people to freak out. <laughs> you can't, you know, as a security professional, I would love to say, give me your phone and I'll give you a new hardened phone instead. But that's a non-starter. People are very connected to their devices. Um, and we spend a lot of time understanding user behavior and understanding where those breaking points are. In the, 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 the inverse example is the home network. Nobody cares what hardware is running their home network. They care that it's fast, it connects automatically, and works throughout the home. And if you can do those things, then it doesn't matter whether it's uh, the, you know, an Aruba wireless access point or from something from Cisco, they don't care at all. Um, so to try and answer your question as pointedly as possible, um, if they're streaming BitTorrent, and it's coming from a uh, address that we're blocking, we'll block it. Um, I'm not sure whether we block that protocol overall or not. I'd have to dig into the details, but um, we haven't yet gotten a call from a protectee saying, you are on the network, you are blocking something I care about. Um, but we're blocking tens of thousands of uh, external scans and hundreds of, um, of of, of outgoing connection requests every day for every protectee. You know, for, for that blocking process, uh, are, are you having to install uh, like a physical appliance at the location to be able to do that filtering or is the traffic being routed through you? How, how does that work? Well, so it's both. Um, we do install a physical appliance. So we, we call it our network security box. Um, it's, a, it's a bunch of open source tools running down on a, on a stripped down flavor of... Uh, of BSD, um, and it functions like it's you know an adaptive firewall does DNS sinkholing and IP blocking at the at the home network level. It also does the DHCP server, so all of the isolation and routing that you get on the home network runs through that box. It ships logs; the network logs get shipped back to our uh, analyst infrastructure, and that's how we're able to provide holistic coverage uh, on the home network. So uh, would you say that as the uh, as a CEO there at a startup, do you wear a lot of hats? Of course. <laughs> I mean, everyone who works here wears a lot of hats. Now, are, and are those the hats behind you? <laughs> uh, there's only some of them. I, we've got, you, you have no idea how many more hats there are. Um, no, I, I, unfortunately, this is our, I'm, I'm actually sitting in our conference room, and uh, my staff thought that the white background was just too plain, so they, they hung hats. They hung hats, okay. Yeah, I was curious. I was like, well, that, oh, it's his hat collection. Wait, That's they're right. all the same. They're black hats. So, That's yeah. right. They're black we, hats. We, 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 have, we, have, we have extras. Anyone oh. who uh, signs up for the Cypian Black uh <laughs> The executive protection platform gets a hat, there a hat, go. and a network security box. Well, let's say <laughs> let's say uh, that that we've got some some CISOs, some CEOs, people that that do want to uh, look into the service. What's the best way to connect with you on that? Hit our website www.cypianblack.com and uh, shoot us an email. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, Don, anything else you wanted to cover? You know, I, I did have one Go last ahead. question because you, you mentioned the network security box that goes in. So that, that's going to replace kind of the, the router type side. But but you had mentioned if they had access points or other devices on the network, those would kind of be left alone. Uh, uh, no, let me. I'm sorry to jump in. Let me. So from the ISP in, we own your network. And okay. that includes deployment of all the hardware. So we, we have our network security box, our own commercial grade wireless access points, um, our network uh, attached storage device. Uh, so all the stuff that you might care about on your network, but we don't we don't try and replace your ISP. But and look, one of the hats just fell. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I, that I was the ISP hat we that just have, fell we off. Ended before. <laughs> yeah. That's right.
Well, I'm glad I asked because I was going to ask about whether you monitor the firmware on these devices and stuff. But obviously, if you control the devices and you'd absolutely do that. So, so that gives you the total coverage. Excellent. Now, the, these people that, that actually come into the home, are they going to be there uh, the whole time? Because I just have the one guest room as well. <laughs> That's right. Well, it depends on, you know, how it's it's an annual service. Okay. So they'll move in and it's, we could do it with just one person maybe. And it depends on how big your house is. Really. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Because they've just got to watch that one camera and make sure that nobody's getting in on that and, and check the fridge. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, Nate, uh, so much for taking the time to join us today. And, and hopefully we can uh, reach out in a, in a little bit and see uh, how things are progressing for you guys. Thank you. Appreciate your time. And thank you to all of you watching right now on TechNATO, but stay tuned. We've got more coming up right after this. Enjoying TechNATO? Then be sure to check out Ignite, another podcast from the Pro TV Network. Ignite highlights stories of leadership as host Vicki Guy interviews a new business person each week. Learn more at itpro.tv slash podcasts. All right. Thank you very much to Nate for that interview and uh, that beautiful collection of hats. Um, but, Don, do you think that's something that uh, we should get for, for our executive team over here? Uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of value to it. I, I, I can totally see where that product makes sense. It did sound expensive, though. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we didn't get to <laughs> but, that part. But, you know, what is the cost of a breach? Sure. Right. Or your company's reputation? Uh, if, you're, if your CEO is the one who gets compromised, that's pretty embarrassing. So. Yeah, on the one hand, you'd say, oh, well, the CEO gets gets breached. That's that's bad for him. But if you're if you're Equifax or something like that where they say, well, if the CEO got hacked, you know, and what about the company? So if, if a breach costs you millions of dollars, then how much is a service like what he provides worth? It'd be worth a lot. Well, if I'm on the outside looking in, I, I, I would definitely go after our CEO, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but don't, don't tell him I said that. It's just between us. Um, all right. Well, we want to let you know about a few things before we let you go here on TechNATO. First of all, uh, we've got some great webinars coming up. We actually just had one today on Microsoft test uh, certification test prep. Uh, a lot of changes there um, with the way Microsoft is, uh, is doing their testing now and, and their certifications. So uh, definitely check that one out. If you head over to itpro.tv slash webinars, um, we'll have the archive available for that one very soon. You'll be able to see that. Also have a couple coming up, uh, 10 tips for leading effective IT teams with Joe Peacock, uh, and also one I'm really looking forward to that Don's doing on what does hacking look like, watching a live network attack from both sides. And uh, Don, are you going to make it easy on, on Daniel to hack your machine there, you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, because we need to show a successful hack. If it's just 30 minutes of me blocking Daniel, it's going to be boring. Unless you're like pointing <laughs> and laughing the whole time, I think that'd be good. If you like watching a boxing match where one of the fighters just no, just just <laughs> holds the other guy's head yes. on the top, right? Yeah, you're like I've got him in reach, yeah. so we'll do but that. It'll be a great webinar though, and it's totally free, so definitely sign up for it. But basically, Daniel's going to be hacking a server, and I'm going to show each step along the five phases. You know how you could have spotted it, and and what were some of the things you could have done to have prevented it. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, that, that's cool, and that's going to be at itpro.tv/webinars, uh, where you can sign up, and that one's taking place on May 9th, and the previous one about leading IT teams is April 25th. So mark your calendars, folks. Uh, and also want to let you know about uh, an offer from IT Pro TV. So if you're looking to level up uh, your career and um, and 
train uh, for additional IT certifications or just learn about the new latest and greatest things out there, head on over to go.itpro.tv slash technado. Uh, we've got a 30% off coupon code um, for your personal accounts. And if you uh, have a, a team and you want to uh, get them all signed up, uh, go ahead and fill out the form on that site and you can uh, talk with one of our reps here about special team pricing and our pro portal and all the things that go with that. That's go.itpro.tv slash technado. All right. Well, thank you guys, uh, both of you, for joining, and uh, thank God Wes was here because if if he hadn't been in that in that Intel stuff, I this this wouldn't have been a great show. <laughs> oh, thank it's, you. Yeah, oh, it's awesome to be here. Love hardware. All right, and thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you back here next time on Technado.